Judy Scheinlin, I think that's how you say her name, Judy Scheinlin is a retired Manhattan family court judge. Do you know who she is? This is Judge Judy. You might know her better as that. She is a daytime television favorite since 1996. I just found out, sadly, uh, Judge Judy is coming to an end next, uh, next year. Uh, Judge Judy presides over the most outrageous small claims in her famous no-nonsense wisecracking style. Here are some samples of the cases you'll hear on Judge Judy if you're at home uh, sick from work or school in the middle of the day. In one case, a woman claimed that she bought a dog on the street, but the plaintiff claimed that it was his dog. So we have a classic kind of solemn, King Solomon-like case. Well, in Judge Judy Solomon-like wisdom, she let the dog beside. So she placed the dog in between the woman and the man, and the dog ran straight to the man. Case dismissed. <laughs> in another case, a woman moved out of her apartment because she didn't get along with her roommate. She then found a new apartment, but the rent was more expensive. So she attempted to sue her old roommate for the difference in order to pay for her new apartment. Judge Judy dismissed that case. <laughs> the best one I've encountered. There was one case that lasted all but 30 seconds with Judge Judy. One woman accused two men of stealing her wallet. So Judge Judy asked her what was in her wallet. And she said, uh, there were some gift cards in there, that my earpiece was in there, and there was a calculator. Before the plaintiff finished her sentence, one of the two men accused chimed in and said, actually, there was no earpiece in there, ma'am. <laughs> Judge Judy dismissed the case. How did the people on Judge Judy come across? One of the appealing parts of the show, kind of sadly, is that the people on it are laughably embarrassing, right? And then when you remember that these are actually people, and many of them uh, and their disputes are between family members and friends, it's more than embarrassing, it actually is pretty sad. By this time in our, in our study of 1 Corinthians, we know that this was a messy church. Paul spent four chapters addressing the divisions that were among them. But believe it or not, the mess did not end at these divisions. As we saw in our last time in 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 5, this church had someone in it who had an ongoing affair with his, step with his stepmother. This week we see that there was a dispute among people in uh, the church of Corinth that got to the point where one person was taking another to court. Now, Paul will make clear, as we'll see, that it's not that you can never have disputes or grievances with somebody in church. The point Paul is making today in this passage is that the way that they handled this dispute embarrassed the church. They could have worked through it in so much better of a way. They could have worked through it in a way that showed that they were those who had received much grace. So let's continue and study our, our 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 1 to 11. You can find it printed in your bulletin or in your Bibles. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. If you are a kettle, when things get heated, what is the steam that comes out? How we work through grievances and disagreements and conflicts shows the state of our hearts. It reflects what we believe in. Even Jesus himself said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. As in so many places, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians that their behavior did not reflect those who believed in Christ, who believed in the gospel, and who have hearts changed by grace. So the positive takeaway from this passage as a whole is that God's grace in Christ calls, equips, and qualifies us to work through conflict well and live at peace with one another. I'll say that one more time. God's grace in Christ calls, qualifies, and equips us to work through conflict well and live at peace with one another. We'll work through this passage in two movements reflecting the two paragraphs that we're considering this morning. So the first movement is a shameful situation, its outcome, and an alternative. A shameful situation, its outcome, and an alternative. Verse 1 is as good a place as any to start, so why don't we start there? Verse 1. Let's read that again. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? This is Paul introducing yet another scandal among the Corinthian church. In the original language, the very first word of this new section is the word dare. As if Paul is starting off saying, how dare any of you do what you are doing? Now, Paul doesn't disclose all of the nitty-gritty details of what's going on here, but using verse 1 as a base, we can piece together the situation that was happening in Corinth. As that Paul describes. So from verse 1, we can see the people who are involved. Notice he says, one of you. Later at the end of verse 5, Paul says, what's going on is between the brothers. So as Paul is yet again addressing another scandal, yet again this is another scandal from those who purport to be Christians. This is another scandal, not that's happening outside of the church, this is another scandal happening inside of the church, within it. 
verse 1, piecing together the situation. We see what precipitated this scandal, what came before it that made it possible. He says, when one of you has a grievance against one another. The word for grievance here refers to some kind of civil litigation. It is not a serious crime. In fact, you keep going in verse 2, he labels this grievance as trivial cases, stuff that deals with ordinary everyday life. In fact, he says, matters that pertain to this life. In verse 5, he calls this a dispute. That is, this is something less serious than a drawn-out court case. This is something that should take less time and strain to resolve. Now, commentators speculate on the nature of this grievance, given that the city of Corinth was the commercial center of Greece, and that Paul uses the language of inheritance later on in this passage. That leads some commentators to conclude that this grievance had something to do with a business dispute. Um, so maybe, maybe that's the case. But whatever it was, this was something of, it wasn't a big deal. It was ordinary, everyday life. Piecing together the situation still, with verse 1 as the base, we see the controversial action that came out of this grievance. Right? So the person who had the grievance, Paul says, goes to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. He describes the same action in verse 4. He says, you lay them before those who have no standing in the church. So notice for Paul, what was the big controversy here? The big controversy wasn't necessarily that they had a dispute or a grievance in the church. I mean, those are going to happen, right? The big controversy for Paul was how they handled it, was how they responded to it. They took it to court. So here's the situation pieced together. This is a minor dispute among those in the church that led one person to take another to court. Why is this situation shameful, as Paul puts it? I think we can see at least three reasons in this paragraph why this situation is shameful. The first reason is it's shameful to go to law over this kind of grievance is because the Corinthians themselves were called and capable to handle this on their own. They were called and capable to handle this on their own. This is Paul's point in verses 2 and verse 3. He makes an argument from the greater to the lesser. You can see that. It, if they were able to do the greater task of judging the world and judging angels, then they can do the lesser task of handling these trivial, everyday kinds of cases between themselves, from the greater to the lesser. That is worth commenting on judging the world and judging angels, because that seems like a pretty big thing. To know what Paul means when he's saying this, uh, we, it helps to keep other passages of Scripture in mind, like we would if we struggle to know what any part of Scripture means. Keep other passages of Scripture in mind. There are passages that speak of believers ruling over the world. This is what Jesus says in Revelation 2, verses 26 to 27. He says, The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So there are passages like these that speak of believers ruling ruling alongside Christ, 
There are also passages that speak of God being the one who judges the world, such as Romans 3, verse 6. So when we put these together, we can say that as believers will reign with Christ, so believers also will sit with Christ as he judges the world. And this is what Paul talks about here. The rule that Jesus has and that he shares with his people even includes ruling over angels. The point that Paul's trying to make, Paul puts on his doctor's, doctor coat, his stethoscope, I don't know if they had stethoscopes back then, and he looks at the Corinthian church and he frequently prescribes them the same medicine. He prescribes them a healthy dose of perspective. Perspective. He tells them, guys, if you are going to participate in the judgment of the world, then you should be able to handle these minor rifts among the church. You should be able to handle this. This lands especially hard in verse 5, when Paul asks, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? So here they were as those who were destined to be with Jesus in the final rule of the universe, and here they were as those who lauded themselves as the wise of this world, but they couldn't handle a petty disagreement. So shameful. The second reason it is shameful to go to law over this kind of grievance, first reason was that they were called and capable of doing it themselves. The second reason is that the outside courts were not called and capable of handling this. Paul calls those presiding over courts unrighteous in verse 1. He calls them those who have no standing in the church in verse 4. He calls them unbelievers in verse 5. Now, Paul's doing more than making the very first lawyer joke. <laughs> He's appealing to well-known shortcomings of the legal system that the Corinthians lived in. So the Corinthians would have an easier time knowing why Paul described the courts in this way because they experienced them firsthand. Paul's labels make more sense when we know the background of the courts in that time. The courts in that time, the, uh, the Roman Empire, part of the Corinthians were a part of, these courts often took bribes. They favored the rich and the powerful. The Roman philosopher Cicero said this about the courts of the Roman Empire. He said the courts will never convict any man, however guilty, if only he has money. The partiality toward the powerful meant that the rich and influential could take advantage of others. In particular, they could take advantage of poor people. They could capitalize on their influence, they could enhance their own reputation by defaming those who they took to court, and they could increase their wealth with various legal conquests. We see the same practice just a little bit in the book of James, which we went through, I think, last year. James chapter 2, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? James dealt with this same system. Now, just worth a little aside, Paul's stance towards civil and legal authorities is not entirely negative. You've got to keep other things that he says in mind. For instance, he understands, as he talks in Romans 13, that God has appointed governing rulers to deter evil, to promote good. He's appointed governing rulers, uh, giving them the sword of punishment 
He's appointed human governments to have legitimate jurisdiction that all people should submit to. So it's important to remember here, too, that the case that Paul's dealing with was not a criminal one, where the government had jurisdiction and should step in. Though Paul's view of government is not entirely negative, Paul's view of government is also realistic. Paul himself, too, experienced firsthand the corruption of the Roman Empire and its court system. I was held in prison for two years because the governor was waiting for somebody to give him a bribe. The governor was waiting for some way to appease his people. Paul was wrongly imprisoned multiple times. Paul was wrongly beaten multiple times. So just as this aside, Paul stands toward governments, toward governing authorities, toward the court system. I think it's a good model for us. Like with so many other things, almost with everything today, People go all or nothing when it comes to their view of government and their view of civil authority. Either it's all good and you can never criticize it. If you do, you're not a patriot. Or that the entire system at its very core is corrupted and you need to tear it all down. Just have these two extremes. Paul offers a more balanced, measured, biblical approach. You recognize human government's authority. You recognize this authority's limits. You recognize where it oversteps and abuses its authority. So why this situation was shameful? The Corinthians could handle this themselves. This was a minor dispute. The court system outside of themselves that they took this to was corrupt. Would not handle this well as they could. The third reason this situation is shameful and now one person in the church is going to court over a minor grievance are the outcomes that this situation would bring. The outcomes. In verse 6, Paul says, Brother goes against brother, and that before unbelievers. His use of brother is purposeful. It's deliberate. He wants to get across that they are meant to be a family in Christ. This action is shameful because there was one family member attempting to ruin another family member, all over a minor issue. And to make matters worse, people outside of the church would witness this. Jesus said that his followers, that, that people would know his followers by their love for one another. In the city of Corinth, people would know Christians by their hatred of one another. This is shameful. It's no wonder then why Paul says that getting to the point of a lawsuit is already a defeat for them in verse 7. Doesn't matter if they win the case. Doesn't matter if they win the settlement money. They will lose their witness and they will lose the reputation of Christ's name. So we see Paul rounds out this paragraph by offering an alternative. What they should do instead. Instead of the defeat that will come with a lawsuit, the effects that it will have on the church, the effects that it will have on the individuals, the effects it will have on the reputation of Christ's name, Paul says, why not avoid those outcomes by being willing to be wronged, by taking the high road, by not making a mountain out of a molehill? In many places, the Bible commends this alternative route that verse 7 describes. Famously, Proverbs 19, verse 11. 
says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. This was the way of Paul. We read it in Romans 12. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Ultimately, this alternative route is the way of Jesus, isn't it? The one who said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is Jesus, the one who was sinned against, wrongfully put on trial, beaten, mocked, scorned, and executed. All for the sins of his enemies. So there's the opening paragraph. Maybe if we zoom, on, zoom out on it, we can see this is what was going on, why it was bad, and what they should do instead. Now before we move on to verses 9 to 11, we should reflect on this paragraph just a little bit. And I think a good way to reflect on this is examining how we handle conflict ourselves. How do we handle when we are upset with somebody? How do we handle it when we have a grievance with somebody else? Does this come up for you? Do you ever get mad at somebody else? <laughs> Husband and wife, kid and parents, church member and church member, every time you log on to Facebook? <laughs> Remember that the very first word of this section is when, not if, we have a grievance with someone else. When that happens, here are four questions to ask yourself based on this paragraph. First question, how we handle conflict. Is this problem really as big of a deal as I'm making it out to be? Is this really that big of a deal? Most people know the book of Jonah uh, for the story of Jonah getting swallowed by a big fish and spat out three days later. Rightfully so, this is an amazing event. Most people don't forget the sin issues that God dealt with Jonah over throughout the book. Jonah eventually gets to this wicked city of Nineveh. He preaches the shortest sermon of all time and experiences a massive city-wide revival, and he's upset about it. He sulks. He goes outside of the city into the desert. And it's there where God causes a little tree to rise up, and Jonah gets some shade, and then the tree withers, right? You may remember this. And then Jonah is upset again. And in response, God asks Jonah a very piercing question says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, yes, angry enough to die. Like Jonah, many of us are easily offended, easily irritated, easily bothered. Get upset over petty things. Bickering, speaking under our breath, is a regular form of communication that we use. Friends, if this is how we are, then what does that say about our hearts? At the very least, it says that we like to get what we want, that we like to control everything about our situation, even down to the smallest, pettiest of details. So the next time you're upset, especially with another person, take a dose of perspective. Is this really that big of a deal? Maybe it is, but it's 
Probably not. Alongside the Corinthians, you should ask, what would eternity say about this problem that I'm upset about? Second question, we can ask ourselves on how we handle conflict with people. How am I treating this other person? How am I treating this other person? Is this how I should treat somebody who is made in the image of God? Is this how I should treat a brother or sister in Christ? Listen, people should be held accountable for their actions. I understand, yes. But you know as well as I do that disagreements and arguments can quickly get personal where both sides end up attacking one another, saying things that they shouldn't say. George Whitfield and John Wesley were prominent ministers of their day, both playing key roles in the Great Awakening that spanned both sides of the Atlantic. But George Whitfield and John Wesley had a constant rift. They disputed over God's sovereignty and man's freedom and salvation, Whitfield emphasizing the former, Wesley the latter. And at times, this rift got really personal. They said things to one another that they should not have said. But when George Whitfield died, one of John Wesley's followers asked him, do you expect to see George Whitfield in heaven? Wesley replied, no. To which his follower said, that's what I thought. Wesley continued, do not misunderstand me, madam. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that one like me who am less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. This is somebody who, they didn't like one another. Even in conflict, love your neighbor. Do what Jesus says and what Jesus did. Love your enemy. Why nobody does that anymore. Love your brother and sister in Christ. Third question in how we handle conflict. What witness does my behavior give? What witness does my behavior give? You know people are always watching, right? Even the Bible talks about that. Jesus talked about that. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Remember, uh, Paul Morrison last week said that our faith in Christ may be personal, but it is not private. We do not keep it hidden. We... Let it shape how we live entirely. So the way we speak, the way we act, the way we care, especially when things get heated, either adorn the gospel that we proclaim to believe or tarnish the gospel we proclaim to believe. So for the Corinthians, when this grievance, when this dispute came up among them, when they were in this conflict, they had a chance to show the corrupt world around them that there is a different way. There is a different way to handle when you are upset with one another. There is a different way to resolve conflict. The Corinthians could have handled this problem with grace. They didn't need to take advantage of one another. They could guard one another's reputations. They could have listened. They could have forgave. So when you are upset with somebody else, how can you follow the way of Christ and shine into light instead of following the way that your heart so desperately wants to go? You can ask yourself this, too. If everybody in the church acted like you did, what would the church be known for? What witness would the church have? 
Fourth question in how we handle conflicts just based on this paragraph. Last one. Am I willing to overlook an offense? Am I willing to overlook an offense? This is one way we could follow Jesus and how we handle disputes and disagreements. And listen, sometimes we shouldn't overlook it. I get it, but we're not talking about that. This passage talks about minor, everyday offenses. So for example, every Sunday, I try to come here for, and prepare for gathering with the saints at Old Oak Bible Church with a certain readiness. I try to be ready to focus on the Lord. I try to be ready to engage well with people and ask good questions. But I try to have another readiness also. Every week, sometimes I forget, I try to be ready for somebody to tell me something that's shocking, <laughs> that is offensive, or that is just straight up weird. Maybe that's not your experience, but that's mine, especially as a pastor, and, and this is not me complaining, it's okay. Um, I'd rather you be honest. But instead of having my guard up and being ready to pounce all the time, I want to be ready to overlook an offense. I want to be ready not to react too quickly, to give the benefit of the doubt, to be merciful, to be gentle, to be slow to anger, even not grow embittered against the person. Simply put, I want to be ready with God's help to have the heart of Christ. So verses 1 to 8, where the shocking situation is outcome and an alternative. Put differently, it was what was going on, why it was bad, and why they, what they should do differently. Verses 9 to 11 contain a warning and a reminder. They contain a warning and a reminder. If verses 1 to 8 are the what, verses 9 to 11 are the why and the how. Okay, well, let's pick up in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We've seen that Paul likes to ask questions this way. Do you not know? It's his way of deflating the Corinthian self-proclaimed wisdom and knowledge. So if they were so wise, then didn't they know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So let's unpack a little bit what this means. Paul talks up here about something that will happen in the future. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. This language of inheritance is rich with Old Testament background of inheriting the land. There's a prevalent theme for God's people in the Old Testament, but here the talk is of people inheriting the kingdom of God. This is a regular topic that Jesus discussed. The kingdom of God is here now since Christ has come and died and rose again in victory and he has begun his rule in the hearts of those who believe in him. But the kingdom of God will come fully later when Christ returns and establishes his rule on earth. So when Paul says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, there's something that he implies with that. There is a truth, there's an understanding that goes underneath that statement. This must mean that God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. That is, that those who were a part, that those who are a part of it and under God's rule live in a certain way. Let me go back all the way to the very beginning of humanity. All the way back to Adam and Eve. And we see that God cannot dwell with unrighteousness, with sin. 
So thus Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence and placed under a curse when they rebelled against him. So in the future kingdom, those who practice unrighteousness are cast out and cut off from that kingdom. Paul continues by telling them, do not be deceived. He has to do this constantly for the Corinthians. Do not be deceived. He corrects their thinking. He lists a series of examples of unrighteous living. Somehow, the Corinthians thought that they could live in sin and still be okay with God. This is Paul's warning to them. He says, that's not true. Friends, you cannot live however you want to live and be okay with God. Just take the image of kingdom and king and apply it to this. When you have the mentality that I'm going to do whatever I want, that I'm going to make my own decision, that I am my own person, that I'm going to follow my own desires, that shows that Jesus is not your king. You are your own king. For the Corinthians, in this situation in particular, them being okay with attacking and wronging fellow Christians, being okay with that, continuing in it, not seeking to turn from it, that is a life of unrighteousness. And so a part of Paul's warnings are specific examples of an unrighteous life, a life that has replaced God's rule with our own rule. So he gives the examples of those who are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. We don't have time to go through this whole list piece by piece. But if there is one that grabs our attention, my money that it would be on men who practice homosexuality. Now this isn't a full treatment of this, I mind you, but you should know that many a biblical scholar tries to work around what Paul says here. They'll say that Paul, for instance, has in mind something like pederasty. This was a common practice at the time, which re it refers to a man having sex with a younger boy. Now you think that our culture is the only culture that's ever been messed up sexually. You're wrong. You don't know history. The problem with that, though, if Paul is referring to this practice, is that Paul could have used a very specific word to refer to it, and he doesn't. Instead, he uses two nouns here, and you can see that in the footnote if you're using an English Standard Version Bible. He uses two nouns here, one referring to an active partner and another to a passive partner. He condemns them both, saying both are guilty. This is not some kind of abuse. This is consensual. But a broader point here is not the specific items of this list. It's this list as a whole. This list as a whole would have captured well the people who are around them in Corinth. It would have captured well the sins of this city. Therefore, this list as a whole would show this includes everybody. Everybody lives an unrighteous life. We could put it like this. Homosexuality is a sin. There's no other way around it. It is outside of God's design for sexuality. Good design for sexuality. But you can abstain from homosexuality and still live a life of unrighteousness. And still be guilty of sin. Sexual sin, even. And you can still be under God's right judgment forever in hell. Getting drunk is a sin. Friends, you can never have a taste of alcohol in your life. 
and still live an unrighteous life in rebellion against God and go to hell. Stealing is a sin. You can never touch an item that's not yours. Still live an unrighteous life and be under God's righteous judgment forever in hell. You can be an altogether good person and still just live for yourself without God as your king. Friends, each one of us have to look at the level of our hearts, the very purpose of our lives. Every single one of us in this room rejects the rule of God in our hearts, and the Corinthians were no different. Identify as a Christian, but tolerate and are at peace with sinful patterns in your life. While yes, Christians still sin, we've made that point clear and throughout Corinthians, Christians now seek to fight against the sin that Jesus died for them for. And we seek to walk away from sin. And we seek to be close to the Lord. Friends, simply put, is that desire in you? The Holy Spirit uses warnings like this and others in Scripture to wake up true believers to the sins that they are at peace with to their own self-deception. That's the warning. And Paul closes out with a reminder. Begins at verse 11. He says, And such were some of you. I think that is one of the most humbling and beautiful statements in all of the Bible. And such were some of you. Dare we Christians think ourselves above the world around us? We are reminded that we were part of the world around us. Further, perhaps the most significant and important word in this statement is were. Such were some of you. They are no longer these things. These are in the past. These no longer define them. These no longer are practiced by them. They are no longer at peace with them. Friend, what were you before Christ? Jesus takes even the most wicked of people, makes them clean, and makes them new. Here is a homework assignment. Tell your story to someone this week of who you were and who you are now, and give the praise where the praise is due. So how are we no longer who we once were? It's nothing about what we have done. Notice here, it is what God has done for us. The Corinthians were unrighteous, but God made them righteous. He washed them, paid for their sins. He sanctified them, set them apart for himself. He justified them, declared the unrighteous to be righteous. God did this through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and Christ's work was applied to their hearts by the Spirit of God. So do you see how God's grace to us is the exact opposite of our sin against him? I love this from John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. He says, the essence of sin is that we human beings substitute ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substitutes himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. Friends, here's the good news. The sins of this list are part of the warning. The unrighteous hearts that each one of us have, this does not have to have the last word. 
your life, you can give him the worst, and he is better than it. He is greater than it. Your life can have a period, just like this passage, and then it can have a new sentence that begins. But I was washed. Friend, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? What's the point of Paul's reminder? It's not, you better start living better if you're going to make it into this kingdom. Rather, his point is, you're justified. Start living like it. God gives grace to wipe away sin and to change the sinner. God forgives and equips, enables, and calls us to live holy lives. Receiving grace should make us gracious. Receiving mercy should make us merciful. Receiving forgiveness should make us forgiving. If you remember who you were and what Christ has done and made you who you are now, you'll live the truth that Jesus says. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. We'll close with Charles Spurgeon's words on this passage. He says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not trust in anything else, whatever, but rely upon him alone. Trust in Christ to make you hate sin. Trust in Christ to enable you to overcome every bad habit. Trust in Christ to help you do everything that is right. Trust in Christ to cause you to stand fast even till you get to heaven. This is who we are. Let's live like it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that on our own, we are helpless. On our own, we are no better than anybody else. Boy, do we need that reminder. We just love taking pride in ourselves. However, some help us to remember, to believe, to live that we are who we are because of you. Lord, help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to love one another with the love you have for us. We still deal with sin. Help us to deal with it in such a way that honors you, that leaves it behind, that seeks you for repentance and seeks you again for new life. And give us peace. Make us salt and light. Lord, our prayers can keep going. And we devote ourselves to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen.